Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith, and currently we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Genesis chapter 26. We're going to be uh, finishing up this chapter today, Genesis chapter 26. We're going to be starting with basically the last two verses. We're going to end up seeing Esau again. The last time we saw Esau was when Esau and Jacob had a little tiff over some uh, birthright. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that you'll remember that Esau traded his birthright to Jacob for a pot of stew. Mm-hmm. A pot of stew. He took something that was really significant and treated it casually. He took something that was really important and just kind of blew it off. Treated it as almost like it was no big deal. It was a big deal, and he treated it as if it was no big deal. This is actually also going to be, this chapter that we're going to be entering into, chapter 27, is going to highlight a third struggle that you see between Esau and his brother. And the first struggle was in the womb. You remember when Rebecca was pregnant, and she's going, oh man, what is going on inside of me? And that God had a word for her, and God said, there are two people in your in your womb, two nations in your womb. And then there was this ending line that the older would serve the younger. That it was clear from that oracle of God that the youngest son, that we now know as Jacob, is going to be the one that's going to be preeminent, and that it was Esau that was going to be subservient, all right? A superior for Jacob and an inferior for Esau. The blessings that God had given Abraham were intended to be passed down to Isaac, intending to be passed down, not to Esau the firstborn, but to the secondborn, Jacob. The first struggle was in the womb. That second struggle was over the birthright. And now we're going to see in chapter 37 this other struggle over a blessing. But here we are resuming then with Esau, remembering the last time we were together with Esau and Jacob, and that was the struggle over the birthright. So in verse 34, it says this, When Esau was 40 years old, he took as wives Judith, the daughter of Biri, the Hittite, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. So how old is Esau then? He's 40 years old. So I'm going to fill in some blanks on the wall up here. Esau ends up taking these women as wives when he's 40 years old. Do you remember how old Isaac was when he got married? 40 years old. Yeah, he was 40 years old as well. So Isaac was 40 when he got married, the same age that we we see Esau here getting married. All right, 40 years old for each of them. But there's going to be a big difference. Because if you're looking at the women that he ends up marrying, and then you add to that verse 35, somebody might reading nice and loud verse 35. And they brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah. And they brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Who is the they? It, it, the context would be from verse 34, right? Mm-hmm. Judith oh, and Basemath. Yeah, the two wives, the two women that Esau chooses to marry. Mm-hmm. Did you catch that? Esau chooses to marry. Who chose the wife for Isaac? Do you remember that? Well, God kind of did. But Abraham, you know, dad kind of had some say in that. Do you remember that story? Dad was like, 
taken his trusted servant, his unnamed but most trusted servant, and says, I want you to go and get a wife for my son, Isaac. This is a really big deal. I want you to go over way far away to the other side of the world and find a woman because it's going to take that long of a journey to find the right woman for my son. Not just any woman's going to do, and you're certainly not to choose a woman from around here to be the wife of my son. Do you remember all the preparations that were made that Abraham was very strict about it? He says, this is what you're to do. Go do it. If it doesn't work out, then God releases you, but it's going to work out. All right. And so the servant goes to the other side of the world and goes and finds the woman that God has picked out for Isaac. All right. And it's, it's just this perfect arrangement. It comes and then Isaac ends up getting married to Rebecca at 40 years of age. Contrast that with Esau. There's no big preparation by dad. Isaac, he was the beneficiary of the planning that his dad had done, right? Isaac's dad was Abraham. Abraham had done lots of planning, lots of forearranging, discernment from the Lord saying, don't marry anyone from around here. And yet he doesn't pass along any of that heritage, it seems, insisting that Esau follow in a like pattern. Esau ends up picking up two women from that local area. He ends up marrying people on his own without, it seems, the parents having much involvement, if any at all. There's no mention whatsoever of any involvement on the part of the parents, either instructing him, teaching him, finding a wife for him, or saying, this is a bad idea. All right? But we end up finding in verse 35, these women were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. Talking just a little bit about the names here, about the women, before we move on. Number one, Judith. This is the only place Judith is mentioned. There's actually three different places in Genesis where the mention of Esau's wives comes up, but this is actually the only passage where Judith comes up. And so there's all kinds of speculation as to why that could be. Uh, one of the proposals is, well, maybe she died very soon after they got married. That's a possibility. Another possibility is, well, maybe she was barren, which would be interesting because we've seen that happen a lot. Or there could have been something else that might happen. There's no consensus as to why Judith is only mentioned here. Uh, but one of the interesting things about her name, she is Hittite. You notice that. She's Hittite. She's not Jewish. She's Hittite. <laughs> she's not Hebrew. All right. She's Hittite. But her name is a Hebrew name. It's a name that's a very common Hebrew name, meaning Jewish, thus meaning a Jewess or female Judean. So I thought it was kind of interesting. You can't pass that up. You've got to mention that. All right. And she's the daughter of Biri. Biri becomes a well-known Hebrew name as well that you would see in Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. And then it also recalls that meaning of the Beersheba, the place about the wells, beer meaning well, all right? And then base math, she's Hittite as well, but her name ends up finding a place in Hebrew and it ends up being related to the word that means spices, perfumes, balsam, shrub, or oil, and can also have a connotation of wealth or intimacy. Uh, so these two women that Esau ends up marrying. The big thing I want to point out, though, is that when we're contrasting, when we're looking at the marriage of Isaac to Rebekah, and we're looking at the marriage of Esau to these two women, when it came to Isaac and Rebekah, as we were talking about, it was very particular. It was very deliberate. You're not to pick somebody from around here. Not just anybody's going to do. All right, we want to be very careful. This is a big deal. We want to treat it as a big deal. But with Esau, it doesn't seem to be a big deal. Marrying a woman from this area doesn't seem to be a big deal. He just seems to kind of casually go about it. Oh, wait a minute. Isn't that the way he's been living his life all along? Isn't that how he treated his birthright? It was a big deal, but he treated it casually. It seems that whenever this big deal comes along that we can read about having to do with Esau, he treats it casually. It's like he just, oh, no big deal. You know, it could be that maybe Isaac told Esau, hey, you know what? Rebecca, she's from way over there. I highly recommend that if you're going to find a wife, go over there. And perhaps he was like, eh, it's not that big of a deal. 
I think I'll just do what I think is right. I think I know well enough that this is going to be fine. As if our ways are better than God's ways, right? Sometimes God's ways are inconvenient. Sometimes God's ways are difficult. And sometimes we want to take the easy way out. And Esau seems to be a take the easy way out kind of guy. But Esau, take the easy way out kind of guy, he takes women from around that area. What's the big deal, though? What is, really? I mean, that's probably what he would ask his dad. What's the big deal? I'm marrying two Hittite women. What's the big deal? Some of the other passages I want to consider, and we don't have to turn to all of these, but uh, what ends up happening is you'll find out that as we read in verse 35, and they were a grief of mine to Isaac and Rebekah, it becomes such an issue that Rebekah, quite a few verses from now, at the end of the next chapter, ends up saying... I can't stand this anymore. She ends up using it sort of as a ruse, though, when she does this, because her intention is actually to take her favorite son, Jacob, and send him off to her land to find a wife over where she came from. But basically, she calls out to Isaac and says, I can't take this anymore. I can't take these women. This is not going to work. You better not let Jacob marry these women. You better not let Jacob marry a Hittite woman. The idea was that when God had called Abraham, he had called Abraham from something over to something else. But also when he called him to the over to something else, he says, keep yourself pure, basically. He says, I want to preserve you. Don't become like all these people around here. You don't get to adopt the way they live. You don't get to adopt the gods that they worship. All right. And I think it comes down to a matter of, are you going to worship the gods of these Hittites or are you going to worship the one true God? The God that called Abraham is the one you're to follow. But he ends up, Esau ends up marrying Hittite women. They worship a different God. They worship a different God. In fact, when you get later on in Deuteronomy, this is after the Exodus, God is talking to Moses, and Moses writes it down for our benefit or for the benefit of people at that time, and we get to learn from the lessons there. It says this in Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 and 4, God speaking, Nor shall you make marriages with them. Who's the them? Well, it includes Hittites and Canaanites among a group of seven specifically named people that become seven nations of the land at that time. So God is saying, you shall not make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son. And then verse 4, I want to emphasize even more, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And then Moses pens, so the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. All right. God takes it seriously. God is basically telling them back then, what Paul would say in Second Corinthians, don't become unequally yoked. Don't just go and treat this as a light and casual thing. This is a big deal who you marry. This is a big deal who you align yourself with. This is a big deal who you partner yourself with. And you, just because maybe they're the easy way out or just because you think, uh, I don't know, they appeal to your cravings or something, doesn't mean you can take the easy way. If God has a harder way, that's the right way. And if the way you've conjured up seems like it's an easier way, that doesn't mean it's the right way. That means probably more trouble. And that's what Esau's going to experience. Those women, though, that end up, as uh, God was telling Moses to tell the people, that they will turn you away from me. In 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 through 2, it infected even the highest rank of the land. That was King Solomon. King Solomon, you remember when he began his reign, God says, what would you ask of me? And King Solomon's like, hmm, well, I could ask you anything. And he goes, I ask for wisdom. And God says, you asked for wisdom. You didn't ask for riches. You didn't ask for the life of your enemies. You didn't ask for long life. You asked for wisdom. I'm going to give you wisdom, and I'm going to supply also riches and honor unto you as well. And so God says, I'm going to make you wiser than anybody that's ever lived. So King Solomon, with the wisdom beyond anybody that's ever had wisdom, he ends up falling into the same trap. 
he ends up marrying women. And it says in 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 through 2, it says, But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. Hittites, same group of people that Esau's marrying here. Verse 2, From the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. The wisest man, the highest ranking person in the land, falls prey to the same thing. And what ends up happening, if you know the story of Solomon, they succeeded in doing that. They divided his heart. He did not have a whole heart for God because of his relationships with these women. Later still, Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 25 through 27. The children of Israel, all right, they've been disobedient. God banishes them from the land, right? And there's this 70-year period where they are not allowed to go back. And then when the 70-year period is over, God allows them to go back, and Nehemiah rises up as one of the leaders at the time. And he, in the book of Nehemiah, the last chapter of the book, and nearly the last few verses, it says this. Nehemiah finds out that people that are holding positions of leadership are actually intermarrying with Hittites, among other groups. And he gets so mad, it says he ends up contending with them. Okay, my version says contending, but some of your other versions, fighting with them. He ends up fighting with them. He brings down curses upon him. He strikes some of them, pulls out their hair, and makes them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations, there was no king like him who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused him even to sin. Should we then hear of your doing all this great evil, transgressing against our God by marrying pagan women, by marrying unbelievers? All right. So when Paul says, don't be unequally yoked, (laughs) this is the history of being unequally yoked. This is a big deal in the eyes of God, because God knows if you align yourself with people, that do not have a relationship with God as you do, they will tear you away. There's no thinking, oh, I'm going to save them. I'm gonna, God's going to use me and they're going to come to know God through me. No, they're going to drag you away. Do not be unequally yoked. Paul, when he says those words, the second Corinthians chapter six, verses 14 and 15, I need to say this though. Paul's not speaking specifically and only about marriage. In fact, it doesn't even mention marriage in the context of that passage. It's about an alliance, whether it's a marriage or a friendship, or a business partnership, whether it's alliances or memberships to certain groups that you're a part of, maybe certain associations or certain job committees. Maybe it has to do with subscriptions to magazines that you have. Maybe it has to do with websites that you frequent. Maybe it has to do with businesses that you patronize. If you align yourself too closely to these influencing voices that would draw you away, that would say, we serve other gods, come follow us, that would say, what you believe, that's old fashioned. That's fine if it works for you, but uh, we've got something else that we follow. (laughs) If you align yourself too closely, you're going to buy into those ideas. If you have friendships where people (laughs) are giving you ungodly advice and you're listening to that more than God's word, you're going to follow the ungodly advice more than God's word. You need to be careful how you align yourselves with people in relationships or in other arrangements where you are paying attention to or opening yourself up to those advices that are contrary to God's word. 
So sometimes we need to be reminded, God's ways are not our ways. Esau might have been taking the easy way out. Esau might have been just saying, oh, this is convenient. I don't want to go across the other side of the world to find my wife. And I'm not saying that's actually literally what we need to do either. I'm just saying we need to recognize that when we make a decision based on convenience, as opposed to what God's word would say, we're going to find ourselves in a bad place. All right. When we make our decisions based on our cravings, to satisfy our cravings, more than doing the hard thing, all right, we're going to find ourselves not in God's will. To be in God's will, sometimes it makes for a difficult choice. Sometimes it calls upon us to make sacrifices. I'd say a lot of times it calls upon us to make sacrifices. It's not always going to be the easy way. In fact, most of the time it won't be. All right. Next section, chapter 27, verses 1 through 5. Now it came to pass when Isaac was old. All right, so now we're going to a dad, right? This is Esau's dad. When Isaac was old and his eyes were so dim that he could not see. So you got the picture, right? He's old. He's losing his eyesight. He's having a hard time seeing. These are going to be important in the story. All right. When Isaac was old and his eyes were so dim that he could not see that he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son, and he, Esau, answered him, here I am. Verse 2. And he said, this is Isaac, said, Behold, now I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Behold, now I am old. I do not know the day of my death. We don't know how old he is right here. All right? We can kind of give ourselves a range. I've got on the board. We've started to fill in a little bit here. So we've got uh, Isaac got married at 40 years old. Isaac had children. When you look at that verse, you find out that Isaac had children when he was 60. All right? And then Esau gets married at 40. So how old is Isaac when Esau gets married? This is like one of those word problems that you remember from school. You're like, which bits of information are the important ones to add together? That's exactly right. Isaac's 100 years old when Esau gets married. We just saw that Esau got married. If these are arranged chronologically then, Isaac has to be at least 100 years old when this story, chapter 27, opens up. But we don't know how old he is. According to Genesis 35, 28, how old is Isaac when he dies? 180. 180. So this story, chapter 27, takes place... Somewhere in this 80-year range. Now, Isaac thinks he's about to die, though. So we would tend to think that it's probably he's probably, you know, getting up into this area. We would think. Because especially the language. I mean, it sounds like that's, that's how you talk when you think you're about to die. So, I don't know. Does he have a year left? Does he have two years left? Maybe three. I don't know. How long does he have? Well, there is one additional clue. And that is that Jacob ends up leaving. Jacob leaves for about 20 years, according to these verses. So if this is arranged chronologically, when Isaac is having this conversation with Esau and says, you know, I'm getting old, I'm feeling like I'm about to die, there's still at least 20 years left, maybe even up to 80, all right? So he's still got a long time to live, all right? Or at least a long time before he actually ends up passing away. At least 20 years, at least 20 years. Okay, so when we're reading these words, we need to take into consideration that his concern about dying turns out to be an unrealistic concern. Have we ever seen Isaac before that he has a fear and it turns out to be an unrealistic fear? It turns out to be an unrealistic concern. When he was in Gerar with Rebecca and he did the same thing that his dad did. And he goes, you know what, do me a favor. You're so beautiful. When we're down here, I'm afraid these guys are going to kill me. So pretend you're my sister. And then he goes down there and it says what? He ends up living down there a long time, right? His fears were unrealistic. He made a decision based on fear. And you remember the lesson there was, you don't make decisions based on fear. He makes a decision based on fear, and it was an unrealistic fear. Here we have another decision he's 
making based on fear. He wants to bless his oldest son because he fears he's about to die and he's got at least 20 years left to go. All right? So the lesson is, you know, be careful about making your decision based on fear. If your fear is your motivation for making the decision you're about to make, that's probably the wrong motivation. Go to God's word. Be praying to God and saying, God, I'm feeling fearful. I need to make this decision, but would you have something different for me? And maybe he, he will say, yes, I have something different for you. All right? But here he seems to be making a decision based on fear. He's afraid that he's going to die soon. All right? So Genesis chapter 27, verses 1 through 5, we read verse 1, we read verse 2. Behold, now I am old, I do not know the day of my death. And then verse 3, now therefore, please take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me. Does this conjure up a memory of something we've seen already? Yeah, if you remember, turning back to the end of chapter 25 and looking at verses 27 and 28. So the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. There was that favoritism that cropped up, and we're like, oh, oh that sounds bad. <laughs> so that passage right there, we found out about Esau. He's this skillful hunter guy. He goes out in the field. He ends up having some success out in the field, and he ends up making food that dad really likes. All right. This story, chapter 27, has to do with go out into the field, you're a mighty hunter, get some game, make me some food that I like. Okay, Isaac is craving the good food. Isaac is craving, I don't know what he makes, does he do a barbecue? Is it stir fry or what is it? I don't know, I don't know how he prepares the food, but something about it is enough that Isaac is willing to say, this is my favorite son. Esau is my favorite because of this food. That's the, the glimpse we're given by the author that writes Genesis. Moses tells us it was the food. He makes good food. All right. So Genesis chapter 27, carrying on what we learned way back there, sends Isaac out to the field to go get some food. But there's a purpose in this meal. This isn't just a, I'm in the mood for some barbecue. What do you see as the purpose there? In verse 4, make me some savory food such as I love and bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Isaac is fearful that he's going to die. He feels like, man, I should get on with this blessing my son. And the blessing was a big deal. The blessing was passing the whole tribal authority down to the next person. Who does Isaac want to bless? Esau. Esau. Who did God say would be the one in charge? Jacob. What's going on? Did Isaac forget that God said that already? When God appeared, when Rebecca was going, oh, what's going on in my womb? And God said, the older is going to serve the younger. It sounds like Isaac's trying to get around that. Because he's in, he likes the food. It's this bodily craving, and he's making a decision based on what he craves. Oh, I like the food better, so I'm going to thwart God's will by giving the blessing to the wrong kid? Or maybe he's just getting old. Maybe he's getting senile. Maybe he's getting forgetful. I got a funny story to give you. There's three brothers, a 92-year-old, 94-year-old, and a 96-year-old. The 96-year-old decides, ah, it's time to go brush my teeth, right? And so he goes to brush his teeth, and he picks up the toothbrush, and he looks at it, and, he's, and he has to yell to his brothers. He goes, did I come in here to brush my teeth, or did I already do that? And then the 94-year-old says, I don't know. I'll come up the stairs, and I'll help you figure it out. So the 94-year-old gets on the stairs, and he's got to hold the railing to go up the stairs, so it looks the same whether he's going up or down. And he's halfway up, and he goes, was I going up the stairs or was I going down? <laughs> and then the 92-year-old is down at the table. He's drinking his cup of milk, and he goes, 
oh man, I hope that I never get to be as forgetful as my two older brothers, knock on wood. And he goes, I'll help you guys out in just a second. I got to answer the door. Somebody just knocked. (laughs) (laughs) Cheesy, I know. Being old and forgetful. Is Isaac old and forgetful? He's old. We've been given the old. Is he forgetful? We're not given that clue. It's possible that Isaac forgot about that oracle that God gave, but it's unlikely. It's unlikely that he forgot. It looks instead like he's intentionally trying to go around what God has already declared is the way to go. Just as Esau made decisions thinking his ways were right, but we know that God's ways are higher than our ways, that God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Just as Esau thought, oh, I'm making the right decision. So Isaac probably thinks, oh, I'm making the right decision, when instead, no, God's ways are different than our ways. God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So it seems that Isaac is intentionally trying to thwart God's will in this matter. I want to read to you from a segment from the Preacher's Outline and Sermon Bible Old Testament Commentary Series on Genesis, where the author ends up saying this, Isaac's sin was an attempt to bypass God's will. How could Isaac, who followed God ever so closely, go against God's will? This is indeed difficult to understand until we remember one thing, the weakness and desires of our flesh, the deep cravings to do what we want and what we think is best. We are all weak in the flesh, and the desires of our flesh run ever so deep when there is a conflict between doing what we want and doing what God says. This was the dilemma Isaac faced, and he made the wrong choice. He gave in to the desires of the flesh. And I have in my own words here, beware of making decisions based on having your cravings met. Isaac did what he wanted, not what God said. Isaac knew that it was God's will for Jacob to receive the blessing, the inheritance of the family, but he planned to bless Esau giving him the inheritance anyway. This was in direct opposition to what God had said. Isaac was acting contrary to God's word, going against what God had said, and Isaac knew that he was being disobedient to God. Isaac knew God's will even before the sons were born. Moreover, Isaac knew about Esau's irresponsible behavior toward family affairs. He also knew that Esau had sold his birthright to Jacob. Simply stated, Isaac's scheme to bestow the blessing upon Esau was inexcusable. He knew the will of God, exactly what God wanted, but here he was doing what he wanted. How could Isaac be so disobedient and fly in the face of God with such a spirit of rebellion? As stated earlier, there is only one answer, the weakness of human flesh. When we want something, really desire it, Too often we go after it, no matter what God's word says. No matter what we want, it is within our nature to rationalize our behavior, convincing ourselves that God understands, and he will perhaps even go along with what we do. We begin to think even if God disapproves, he will forgive us and not reject us, not in the final analysis. Before we know it, we have convinced ourselves that we can do what we want, and we do it. But this we must not do. We must obey God and follow his will, diligently seeking to please him in all that we do. For someday we shall all face him in judgment. And then finally, Isaac followed the custom of the day, that of celebrating the occasion with a meal of feast. This probably helped ease Isaac's conscience somewhat, for he was, after all, just doing what most other fathers did, bestowing their blessings upon their older sons and celebrating the occasion with a festive banquet. He probably thought what so many of us think when we're rationalizing within our minds. God could not look upon me with too much disfavor, for this is common behavior, something that everyone else does. But God doesn't take his cue from what everyone else does. 
God doesn't decide what is right and what is wrong based on the popular opinion of what is right and what is wrong. We know from Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, it's a very famous passage. It says this, God speaking here says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So even if our ways of evaluating things seem to make sense to us, it doesn't mean that's God's way. Even if we think, I got this figured out, if we haven't turned to God and haven't looked in his word, then we're doing a disservice to ourselves, and we're probably going to lead ourselves astray. So it would be wrong for us to cheat on a spouse and say, but I need to do what makes me happy. Is God's word going to support that? No. Does God's word support changing the information on how much you bought that car for? Or changing the information on your tax return? Is God's word going to support cheating on in those ways? No, it's not. Is God's word going to say, you know what, well, go ahead and defraud your employer and play solitaire all day while they're expecting you to be preparing a presentation or a report? No. Even though everybody else is doing it. No, that's not God's way. Or how about misrepresenting to a customer what your product is? Or misrepresenting what service your business can provide just to make a deal? Would God's ways be that way? No. Just because it's popular, just because lots of other people do it, doesn't mean it's right for us. We need to be taking our cues from God's word, not from popular society. Not from the voices of our friends. Not from those voices in the magazines or the websites that we end up spending our time on. We need to have God's word as our authority in our faith and conduct. So closing with this then, what three points would I give you? It would be these. Three points that we look at today. Number one, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. It's a big deal. <laughs> All right? Whether that's a marriage relationship or friendship or some other alliance that you've got. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Number two, beware of making decisions based on having your cravings met. Looks like Esau might have done that. Looks like Isaac's about to do that. Beware of making decisions based on having your cravings met. And number three, God's ways are not our ways. Just because it makes sense to us or somebody's convinced us that this is the right way to go doesn't mean that's God's way for us. That God's ways might be different than our ways, and surely they are. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So those three points again, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Number two, beware of making decisions based on having your cravings met. And number three, our ways are inferior to God's ways. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the challenges that we've received today, and we pray that you would help us to remember these. Help us, Lord, to look to your word when we need to make our decisions, not base our uh, decisions on fear, not base our decisions on cravings of our own desires, not base our decisions on the advice of friends or popular media. Help us, Lord, to base our decisions on your firm rock, your word. God, we pray that you would help us to be more like you each day, we look forward to the day when we will be with you again. Go with us now. Empower us to live as a worthy example, a worthy witness of what it's supposed to look like to be a follower of God. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.